I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing managing U.S.-China relations. How should we understand and view current U.S.-China relations, particularly given China's current foreign policy direction? How does Xi Jinping manage and set foreign policy? How can and should the United States navigate relations with China moving forward? Here to discuss this and more is Professor Susan Shirk. With almost 50 years of experience studying China, Professor Shirk is a research professor and chair of the 21st Century China Center at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. From 1997 to 2000, she served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of East Asia and Pacific Affairs, with responsibility for China. Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia. Her most recent book, Overreach, was released October seventh. Susan, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Bonnie, for inviting me. So I know you have a new book out. It's quite a comprehensive book covering more than just Xi Jinping, but also Chinese policy going back to the early two thousands. You argue in your new book that a new Cold War has already begun between the United States and China. So, from your perspective, how do we get into this new Cold War? When did it start? Surprisingly, it didn't start with Xi Jinping. It actually started in the mid two thousands, two thousand six, seven, eight, nine. That period between the first and second terms of Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao, and when I saw. A change, a market change in Chinese foreign policy behavior, and in its domestic policy occurring at the same time, I was puzzled, and I started doing research to try to figure out why that had happened. And what's interesting is that it comes actually before the global financial crisis. Most people attribute the shift to be. More assertive, even more aggressive internationally, and tighter social control and media control domestically, as well as a larger state role in the economy. That those changes were due to the global financial crisis. It created a mood of triumphalism in China. Chinese elites and public saw the U.S. as having caused the crisis, and that the U.S. is in the decline. And so there was a demand for a tougher, more assertive foreign policy. But what's interesting is it actually does begin before then. In 2006, we saw Premier Wen Jiabao start this indigenous innovation campaign. So the state starts to play a more active role in industrial policy. We also see a tightening up of media, internet, and society before the Olympics, which at the time we thought, okay, this is. What they do before all big events, and after the Olympics, things will go back to normal. But they never went back to normal. That tighter 
control over society, over information became the new normal. And in the South China Sea, the use of maritime vessels, government maritime vessels to enforce sovereignty rights and bully China's Southeast Asian neighbors who have legal rights to a lot of the South China Sea and to the small rocks within them, certainly according to the international law of the sea, that kind of assertiveness or bullying was something new. And it starts around 2006. So what's interesting is it's not all about the global financial crisis. So that's why I looked inside the black box of Chinese politics to try to figure out how policy making worked under Hu Jintao's collective leadership and why it might have generated this kind of overreaching. So Susan, I'd love to follow up on understanding Hu Jintao's collective leadership, but maybe before that, I did also want your sense of how you see the current new Cold War between the United States and China. To what extent is it different from the Cold War that we experienced with the Soviet Union? A lot of my colleagues in the China field, and certainly in the government now in the Biden administration, often say it's not a Cold War, we shouldn't use the term Cold War. And I understand why. It's a provocative term, and it suggests that we already have made our mind up that China is our adversary and we've given up on the prospect of encouraging China to adjust its policies, moderate its policies in a way that will be less detrimental to us. But what other word do we have to describe the situation? Because it's a very hostile competition. It's become hostile and adversarial. Happily, it's not yet military. We haven't seen any use of force. We haven't had any military confrontations between the United States and China. But many of China's policies are designed to frame our relationship as a kind of hostile competition. They certainly started to talk about systemic competition. Xi Jinping started that way before we were doing that. And from the U.S. side, I think many of our policies today are designed to trip up China's rise rather than use it as leverage to induce China to change its policies. So you get a sense in the United States that many of our decision makers in Congress, for sure, but also in the executive branch, may have given up on the prospect of using diplomacy to shape China's behavior. So obviously it's completely different from the U.S.-Soviet Cold War, especially in the sense that our two economies are so interdependent. Great, thank you. So I do want to follow up later on whether you still think it's possible to shape China, but but perhaps at the later half of the podcast. So going back to what you mentioned with respect to Hu Jintao, I thought that was a really interesting point that your book talks 
about the beginning of the Oryj during Hu's period, and particularly in terms of the collective leadership under Hu and how that facilitated China's overreach. As you know, I guess one of the main thoughts in DC is that Xi Jinping has been much more assertive and ambitious. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on how do we understand who, what who did in terms of China's overreach, and then what she did to build on top of that. Yeah, I completely agree that the problem we confront in the Xi era is much more severe than what we had in the Hu era. But it's interesting that it started in the Hu era. So what you had was a relatively weak leader with a larger standing committee, nine members, and very powerful politicians in charge of different sectors, different domains of Chinese policymaking. Again almost entirely focused on domestic issues. This portfolio system of division of responsibilities is modeled on what they had in the Soviet Union. And it makes a lot of sense in a way because people can't be specialists in every type of policy. But what it led to under Hu Jintao is that because the oligarchy, these political leaders, were so worried about open splits in the leadership. The way they got along with one another was basically supporting whatever one another wanted to do in their domain. So they didn't debate, they didn't argue, and they didn't veto one another. Typically, we think of a collective leadership with consensus decision-making as being a formula for stasis or inertia. But in this case, you have a decision-making process lurching all over the place in an uncoordinated way because nobody was checking anybody else. Uh, And it's a kind of log rolling, even though that term is usually used in a legislature. And it results in getting a more exaggerated form of the policy than you would have if there were some real mutual checks. So as a result, you see especially the control coalition. The control coalition led by Zhou Yunkang, who was the security czar, the head of all the legal security uh, system. And he was really quite a powerful politician. And he exaggerated the domestic threats to party rule, especially. And, you know, some of this was actually happening. There were a lot more protests occurring. So, but he exaggerated the threat and was able to introduce all sorts of grid grid management, a lot of the mutual surveillance that we see in Xi Jinping's China really was begun under Zhou Yunkang in the Hu era, or actually some of it even harkens back to the Mao era. So the control coalition was quite hardline, and ideologically too, and in the propaganda Xi Tung 
was part of that control coalition. And then you have the state bureaucracies responsible for managing the economy that fit quite comfortably with the control coalition. Unfortunately, Hu Jintao's first term, he really was exploring the possibility of a lot more political reform and liberalization. In fact, you could call Hu Jintao's first term from 2002 to 2007 as kind of peak freedom of information in China. Investigative journalism, public sphere of people debating issues on Weibo. It was a very exciting period. But who never built a coalition behind that reformist direction? In other words, the private sector, the intellectuals, light industry, coastal provinces. We know that these interest groups really would support that kind of approach. But they didn't really have the political voice, the political clout to balance against the control coalition. So as a result, the outcome was skewed toward overreach. And then in foreign policy, the biggest problem then around starting around 2006 was that these bureaucracies like fisheries, like marine surveillance, they saw that if they emphasized their role in enforcing sovereignty claims in the South China Sea, they'd get bigger budgets, ships, and their own bureaucratic influence would increase too. So we talk about nine dragons stirring up the sea. So these were all different bureaucracies resulting in overreach on maritime claims. And uh, this really changed the international narrative about what kind of rising power China was. People started to see China as a greater threat. That's so fascinating because, as he outlined, in many ways, Hu Jintao was more of a reformer than she or his predecessor. And yet, under a reformer who was more interested in bringing different voices in, a more collective leadership, we actually see China overreaching and see China shifting in a direction that, in some ways, as you just mentioned, created more of an international pushback against a more assertive China. So it's a very interesting, weird dynamic there. That gets us to Xi Jinping then. So we see a lot of very different internal uh, political dynamics, right? We don't see the collective leadership. As you mentioned, the Bucky is chairman of everything. So how does decision-making work now? Do we still see different bureaucratic actors still having an interest to push for more sort of aggressive foreign policy in order for them to have bigger budgets or a bigger say in foreign policy? Well, Xi Jinping was able to get the support of the party elite to be China's next leader. Remember, he was the successor for five years. He actually was elected in a straw poll before the Central Committee had its formal vote. 
which is kind of ironic because, of course, now he hates elections and all the nominations for this next round of leaders at the 20th Party Congress will be done through top-down interviewing and not by a straw poll of the Central Committee selectorate. But Xi Jinping himself reportedly, although they keep the results secret, uh, was elected in this straw poll. People thought he was would be a good reform-minded leader. He had served in coastal provinces, was good at attracting foreign investment, and was friendly to the private sector. And he, of course, was a princeling, son of a highly respected Long March cadre. But then he came in and he surprised everyone by ruling in a very, very different way. And I attribute much of the overreach that we see today that is really uh, making us see China as much more threatening as due to the type of system that Xi Jinping was able to reestablish, which actually is similar to the kind of personalistic leadership that Mao had and that Deng Xiaoping was so anxious to prevent any new Mao in the future. So Deng Xiaoping's effort to introduce um, term limits, retirement ages for leaders, collective leadership, regular meeting of the collective bodies inside the party, like the Central Committee, all of that was designed to prevent what Deng called the over-concentration of authority. And yet today... I think many people in China would agree that we have, under Xi Jinping, an over-concentration of authority. And Deng was so clear about the danger he saw of over-concentrating authority in the hands of a strongman leader, one leader, dictatorial leader, because it leads to arbitrary decision-making. In other words, policy mistakes. They make mistakes. And of course, the greatest mistakes that Deng wanted to avoid anything like that in the future was the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. So today, we see Xi Jinping making those kinds of policy mistakes. I call them overreach because overreach is to take things too far in an exaggerated way, in a manner that snaps back to harm yourself. And I believe this overreaching is harming China, as well as ultimately may even harm the party and Xi Jinping. So you share an interesting account in your book. I think it was after 2018, you had a chance to meet with a group of retired CCP historians as well as inside experts, and they were voicing the fact that Xi Jinping had changed the Chinese constitution to remain president for life, potentially, as incredibly damaging. Based on that account, as well as other interactions that you have, do you have a sense that there are leading figures still high up in the Chinese political system that can oppose Xi, or at least check parts of his power? Well, of course, many of Xi's 
potential rivals are now in prison. Coming into office, one of the first things he did is carry out a massive anti-corruption campaign, which actually continues to this day and has emerged as very clearly a purge of anyone that Xi Jinping believes is not 200% loyal to him. So it's really a dis- what they call a party discipline campaign or purge against disloyal leaders or cadres as much as it is anti-corruption. And, and she himself has said that some of the tigers, the top leaders who have been tried and imprisoned for long terms, were engaged in anti-party activity. They were plotting against the party. So he identified them as building conspiracies. He didn't even just say, oh, it's all about corruption. It's clear that it's about the potential to organize against him and potentially against the party. So it's against any kind of public leadership splits. Well, what does that mean? What that means is many of the people who might have become a focal point of opposition to Xi now are disabled by and quieted by being in prison. It also means that those who are still at liberty, so to speak, still involved in politics, are quite intimidated because they see that for Xi, anyone who appears to be the slightest bit critical of him, who isn't completely loyal, could become the target of the purge. And by the way, the purge has become what Zbigniew Brzezinski called a permanent purge. It just continues, and now it's kind of the third wave of purging, which is focused on the purgers themselves, on the police, on the disciplinary inspection people. Just in the last few weeks, we've had two of the leaders of the internal security apparatus be convicted and one of them already sent to jail. I mean, they're both not free at the moment. They both will be in jail for very long prison terms. So what does that mean? It means that other politicians are afraid to challenge Xi Jinping. They're intimidated. They're also afraid even to give him honest information about the costs of his policies, the international costs, the backlash, but also the domestic costs. And that means that Xi Jinping lives in an environment of a kind of echo chamber of just uh, a lot of head nodding and a lot of praise. And he doesn't have the information to make wise decision. So this system of centralized personalistic leadership is driving overreach now. And what we see, even in the lead up to the political transition at the 20th Party Congress, that she is harming China's own economy. 
through his policy decisions, which is kind of shocking, isn't it? Because for so many years, we've taken for granted the pragmatic judgment of Chinese leaders and that they will always, when things get really tough or there's a lot of the economy slowing down, they'll make adjustments to keep the economy, economic growth and development humming along. But the party is no longer viewed, I think, as an economic development party. It's now a, a party that's a nationalist party, anti-foreign nationalist party, and an ideological party focused on Xi Jinping thought, some version of Marxism. And I don't really think that that is necessarily so appealing to China's growing middle class. Susan, what you outline in terms of the major changes under Xi, as well as the changes to the CCP that he's brought about, it seems quite stark when you put it in the context of U.S.-China relations and in the context of looking forward. So you mentioned 20th Party Congress. What do you expect that we might see from this upcoming leadership meeting, if you don't mind? What are some of the major foreign policy changes you might see or predict in the next five years during Xi Jinping's third term? Well, even in political systems where power is not as concentrated as it is in Xi Jinping's China, we see that leaders who change the constitution or violate the constitution to go have a third term, third terms are really problematic. People get tired of a leader after 10 years or even eight years. So the leader gets even more worried about how he can sustain power and probably gets more repressive and may also divert people's attention from domestic problems by provoking international disputes so that people will blame a foreign target for the problems. And we see that happening a lot in China today. Of course, we're not completely innocent of doing that ourselves. So I think there are reasons to believe that a third term, the overreach will be even worse. We may see further fortifying of the artificial islands in the South China Sea especially if Japan continues to cooperate with the United States in helping to deter a Chinese attack on Taiwan. If there's more coordination in that effort, it seems to me that highly likely that she will put more pressure on Japan, perhaps economic pressure or in the East China Sea, by sending Navy and paramilitary forces into the East China Sea, into the area that's contested between China and Japan. So I think regionally, we will see a more aggressive China. What will be interesting to see is the China-Russia 
relationship, which is a form of overreach under Xi Jinping, which I also don't think is very popular inside China. It's conceivable. I mean, certainly if Russia were to use tactical nuclear weapons or to do anything else like that, I think that would be a red line for China and they would criticize it for sure. And I think that would shatter the kind of China-Russia axis that has been developing. But that's one area to watch for sure. Xi's policies have alienated Europe. You know, I think in his mind, that's all about the United States getting Europe to stand with it in checking China, balancing against China. But clearly, from the standpoint of the Europeans, they see the same kind of problematic policies, not just in foreign policy, but things like the Xinjiang thought reform, internment camps for Muslims, and Hong Kong. Beijing's takeover of Hong Kong was another one that I think disturbed people and led to a harming the relationship with Europe. So I think most likely it will get worse. I do think that there is a chance that the other leaders may have found a way to communicate with Xi that they believe that more power sharing at the top would actually help him. I have this fantasy about the meeting in his office in which they have a kind of intervention and say, you know, we have so many daunting problems and it's so unfair because all of this responsibility is falling on your shoulders. And people are even blaming you personally that's not a good thing for our country or for the party. So a little more sharing of responsibility would help you. And I think that could be, that could involve several leaders who do have their own followings and reputation, positive reputation in China. Wang Yang and, of course, Li Keqiang staying there and uh, Hu Chunhua and Li Xin from Guangdong. These people have pretty good reputations, and especially if they're given responsibilities for some of the leading groups and commissions that are the interagency groups that make decisions, we have a little bit more power sharing and a little bit more shared responsibility, and hopefully that means a little bit more prudence and pragmatism in Chinese policy. Seems like the scenario that you outlined, Susan, would be good for China, good for the United States and China, as well as good for the world broadly. So I very much support this fantasy scenario of yours. I did want to, I know we're probably running close to time, so I did want to ask you a bit more uh, in terms of recommendations and how we can move forward. So as we're looking at this future that you're painting of how China might evolve in the next five years, 
How would you recommend that the United States manage tensions with China? Are there certain things that we should be doing or not doing? And more broadly, what are your recommendations for the United States? I know your book also has recommendations for China, so those are also of interest too. Yes, my last chapter, I love to give advice to anybody. So uh, on child rearing, restaurants, careers. Yeah, so I give advice to Xi Jinping as well as to the Biden administration. But let's focus on the U.S. right now. What I see is that in the past six years, due largely to China's overreaching, anti-China attitudes have become the bipartisan axis of American politics. And that makes it difficult for policymakers to think sensibly about the cost-benefit trade-offs of our own policy. And I believe that it's led to a kind of strategic panic on the part of the U.S. and an overreaction to the China threat. I mean, I frankly think it's ridiculous to say that China is the greatest threat to America when we have Russia that has invaded another sovereign country and is talking about using nuclear weapons. I would hope that we would look more soberly at the costs and benefits, especially of the types of decoupling that we're pursuing. Everything from the entity list on down with visas for Chinese students and certain specialties. It's all about restricting the interdependence between the two countries, the economic interdependence and the technological and scientific interdependence, which actually has been extraordinarily valuable for people in the two countries and the rest of the world. Obviously, there are some areas directly related to military capability where we need to impose restrictions. But what America's asymmetric advantage is, is our rule of law-based open market economy and also our ability to attract talented brains from all over the world to come to our universities. And right now, our China policy is undercutting both of those advantages in a way that I believe will actually undermine our competitiveness. So I think we should have a a better debate, hopefully after our midterm, we might be able to have a good debate about that and think about the trade-offs and the cost-benefit. And finally, that needs to be combined with a new effort at traditional diplomacy. I mean, we haven't had any real diplomacy with China for six years. Lines of communication have eroded. And of course, both sides are responsible for this. But I believe that the Biden administration could could do more to show its desire 
to negotiate some of the areas where we think it might be possible for China to moderate its policies. I mean, there are plenty of areas where it won't won't be possible. I don't see what they're going to do about Hong Kong. But I think even in South China Sea, and certainly with economic policy, it certainly could be possible to negotiate some of the issues, which at the margin, at least, would help moderate Xi Jinping's overreaching. And of course, the other thing about diplomacy, especially as it's observed by our publics, it will also show them that we believe that there's a chance for the two sides to actually work together in resolving differences. Now, I personally am agnostic about whether or not that kind of diplomacy will work with Xi Jinping. But I believe we have to test it by making a more active diplomatic effort. Thank you very much, Susan, for this very thoughtful and very in-depth assessment of both China, but also China's overreach. Thank you so much for joining us today. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Bonnie.